Oh, hello, Salem Horror. What's up? Oh my gosh, hi. Oh, stop. Ah. <laughs> we, uh, we got the twist cap for obvious reasons, so you didn't have to watch one of us struggle with um, opening it. Um, so I think a lot of you were here uh, for the screening before, but uh, let's start out how we usually do. Um, so, hi everyone, welcome. <laughs> um, welcome to the Faculty of Horror podcasting from the horrid halls of Cinema Salem. I'm Alex West. With Andrea Zubisati. <laughs> and we are here live at Salem Horror Fest for our third year. And, uh, wow! There's a line. There's a fill line. It's not arbitrary. These wow. were designed for an entire bottle of Salem red wine. <laughs> Okay. Well, this is this is probably the appropriate amount to have in your cup uh, as we start to talk about under the skin, um, and I feel like a lot of you were probably here for the screening that just of it that preceded this. How was a lot of you were here for that? Yeah, yeah. yeah How yeah. many of you saw this movie for the first time just tonight? Oh. Are you guys okay? <laughs> it's okay to say no. I see some shrugs. Yeah. I, yes. It's yeah. a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot to take in. And it's I a lot to digest. I'm still digesting. Yeah. Not, it's, it's an ongoing, it's a process. We were talking about it. I mean, I saw it when it came out in theaters in 2014, and uh, I, I didn't know how to process it. I didn't know how to handle it. Uh, I saw it with a really good friend of mine, and she drove me um, back to my house to drop me off. And I don't think we said a word to each other the entire time. <laughs> we were just like driving along like the Toronto Viaduct, just in absolute silence. And we just kind of looked at each other and went, Goodbye. <laughs> and I just like wandered into the fog and then here I am in 2019. Um, but yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a devil of a film. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the first you? time I saw it, it was, uh, it was out a couple of years and I'd, I'd heard things. And uh, I used to live right next door to a very good friend of mine who is uh, a, a budding filmmaker. Like we had, our back doors were like attached. So we were in each other's houses all the time. It was like Seinfeld coming into each other's places. And I was like, I'm going to watch Under the Skin today. And she loves, loves, loves this film. So she was so excited for me. And I was like, I'm watching it right now. And I put it on and she came in about halfway through and poked her head in Seinfeld style and was like, what do you think? And I specifically remember, I don't have a very photographic memory, but I specifically remember my reaction was, that was my reaction. She was giving and the thumbs down sign for the audio people at home. Yes, yes, with, with that sound. So whoever's using this mic after me can enjoy, uh, enjoy that. But um, it's a frustrating film. It can be very, very frustrating. And for me, it's, it, it only coalesced in that last scene, and I was immediately desperate to see it again. But that said, I didn't see it again until years later when we were preparing for this podcast. So it feels both fresh in my mind and all new at the same time. Yeah, and I think it's a it's a film that a lot of people are still kind of struggling with to wrap their heads around. There's a fair amount of writing out there about it, um, and some different takes, different interpretations, different readings. Um, I do think this is a very open-ended film. Um, Andrea and I certainly have uh, slightly different readings of certain scenes, but I think they're both right. I don't think there's a right or a wrong answer, like almost any reading. But um, uh, now, Andrea is going to give us a synopsis. Yes, but first... Cheers, girl. Uh, cheers. Congratulations. Cheers, and cheers to Three you years. guys. Thank you to for you coming guys. out. Thank you. We love you. That's good. It's, it's like a spicy red. 
Okay. Uh, all right. So here we go. This is my synopsis. This is my interpretation. Your mileage may vary. The film starts out with a glossy sci-fi sequence that culminates into the creation of a human eye. Are you still with me? That's what happened. Okay, all right. Then, boom, we're on Earth, and a man in motorcycle gear res retrieves a body of a woman from a ditch. Another woman with identical features strips her down and takes her clothes. And after doing some shopping for new clothes and makeup, the woman gets to work. And her task is to drive around in her van, vetting appropriate candidates, which is to say men who won't be missed, seducing them and luring them into captivity. The male agents on motorcycles clean up any evidence of the abduction. The men are held in a kind of pitch black stasis goo until their innards are removed from their skin. I sound crazy. Sound. As, as the woman works, she picks up a man with a disfigured face. She lures him back home, but she catches a glimpse of her... Uh, uh, <laughs> she catches a glimpse in the mirror of her lair. Her victim gets away, and the motorcycle man has to pick him up. Now, the woman goes rogue and ventures into the city on foot with the motorcycle men in pursuit. She tries eating human food... It doesn't go well. And then she tries hooking up with a man who takes her in, but that doesn't work out either. She takes off into the woods where she's attacked by a man. When he wounds her and sees the shiny black alien form under her skin, he douses her with gas and sets her on fire. Is that Checkout? Is that the same movie we all saw? More or less? Because that synopsis underwent a couple of revisions. <laughs> uh, I'm not going to lie. Um, so, and this, for anyone who doesn't know, uh, this is based on a book um, of the same name that came out in the year 2000 uh, by Michael Farber. And it's a very different story. Who's from, read it? Yeah, anyone read it? One? Oh, wow. One? Okay, cool. Uh, so, <laughs> this is good. We're going to spend uh, not too much time, but we're going to, I think it's interesting to note how the book differs. We both got a chance to read it um, over the summer, and the book is quite different. It takes the basic premise of this alien woman who's going around picking up men and then farming them in a certain way, but the book goes into the real kind of minutia of the day-to-day -day of the alien operation and the kind of banality of it. Um, I think the, the book has a lot to do with uh, the commentary on industrialization, the way we consume meat. It, it's a whole kind of different stance. It's almost like, um, you know, the other side of the moon when you're coming at this one story of a predatory female figure mm -hmm. alien. Mm -hmm. uh, what did you think of it? Um, uh, I agree. There's a lot more going on in the book. We see the inside of her head a lot. We follow through her line of thinking and how she's feeling about it. And, uh, and for me, when I've seen a movie and I've read the book that the film is based upon. Sometimes they bleed together in my mind, particularly if the film is very well cast. Even if I prefer the book, sometimes my brain will remember events from the book with figures from the movie. I don't know if that happens with you guys. That didn't happen to me with this particular one. I think because they are just so, they are such fundamentally different women in my head. Yes, and they, uh, the book kind of goes into a great amount of detail about what the aliens actually look like, and they're more like horse-dog figures, and they always talk about like the beautiful fur that they have and all of this, and I was mm -hmm. like, okay, great. That's right. Um, In the book, the alien is barely passing as human, and yeah. we get a, a window into her thoughts where she's always, she's very concerned about that. She's very self-conscious. She's very preoccupied that am I bending my arm in an irregular way? It's, uh, it's all very self-conscious, and I think that's pretty significant. 
Yeah, and then when we come to the film, I mean, the film came out about 13 years after the book came out. Uh, so that's a long time in between, and especially long because the director uh, and co-writer of Under the Skin, the film, had wanted to make it since the book came out. Mm-hmm. And it had a really kind of long laborious process to get from those initial conversations buying the rights to to what we all just saw. That's right. I think an initial script, uh, so it goes, uh, according to legend, one of the initial scripts were that the story would concern a pair of aliens posing as a married couple on a farm. And uh, Brad Pitt was attached to that project early on. I think we can all be pretty relieved that it didn't go that way. But yeah, Glazer decided to focus on one alien perspective and that of a female in this role as per the book. But uh, Scarlett Johansson was also attached for a very long time. Uh, I think it meant a lot to her to do this film and did a lot for her. Yeah, she was great as those trees at the end of the uh, film. (laughs) All of them. Um, and Jonathan Glazer is himself, I think, a really interesting filmmaker. He started his career uh, doing music videos, most famously prob- probably uh, Virtual Insanity by Jamiroquai, uh, Karma Police by Radiohead, that video with the dashboard. Uh, and then he made uh, Sexy Beast uh, with Ben Kingsley, and he made Birth with Nicole Kidman, which is also, those are also kind of like murky, morally ambiguous, emotional films, but they're very cold and very detached. And I think that's why he gets a lot of comparison, and I think fairly to Kubrick. Um, And I think it's interesting because as we're talking about the book, the book is so indebted to this kind of narration and, and these thoughts and these feelings that this alien form is having amongst us. And the film is like, it just pulls back. And it's observing all of these kind of oddities of events. And uh, so I can, I can definitely see that Kubrickian comparison. I agree. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the marketing of this film because uh, fun facts about how Faculty of Horror was once involved with uh, Under the Skin, the film. Um, so I used to date someone. I know. <laughs> uh, I'm sure he's fine somewhere. Um, I'm a ditch. Mm. Um, in but, stasis goo. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, so we broke up. Um, <laughs> and his brother uh, works for E1, which is a distribution company in Canada. Uh, and so he was like getting in touch with me uh, or us rather, but really me because I answer most of the emails um, about like doing giveaways, doing all this stuff. So we actually did some work with them for Under the Skin, the limited Toronto run that it had. So um, I also got like, uh, the, we, gave, we gave away tickets, we gave away the vinyl soundtrack, which let me tell you that soundtrack, when you want to get in the mood. <laughs> Yeah. Um, But I want to mention the marketing because they didn't have a huge budget, but a lot of it was surrounded um, the kind of press narrative that they were creating. And for anyone who doesn't know, especially those early scenes in the film where it's just ScarJo just kind of driving around and it's a few stilted camera angles, um, there were some actors who were hired to like get in the car and do the scenes with her. And then she was also just driving around and stopping into like random guys in Glasgow going, Hello, would you like to come into my car? Which is the closest proximity to a British accent that you will hear from her. Because, holy shit. She sounds like Dick Van Dyke slowed down about, like, half. (laughs) Anyway, 
But there was this whole like press thing about uh, look at these like normal normies get into a car with Scarlett Johansson and some of them didn't even know. And aren't they lucky and aren't they this and aren't they that? And there was this whole kind of celebrity mystique around this, um, this kind of stunt, which I think adds a certain amount of cinema verite. But when uh, Glazer talks about those scenes, he's often talking about like, oh, we had such good scenes, but because these people didn't know they were on camera, they get out of the Scarlet would drop, drop them off and they get out of the car and a production assistant would have to chase them down and be like, you have to sign this. And many of them wouldn't because they didn't, they didn't know and they didn't want to be a part of it. Uh, so he's like, we lost a lot of great uh, scenes that way. But I, I liked, I didn't like it, but I found the narrative, especially when you actually watch the film, um, to be like, aren't they so lucky they got in a car with the sexiest woman alive? <laughs> And she was a pretty big star at the time. Yeah, I mean, she'd uh, she'd been doing all her indie films. She'd been doing the Marvel movies for a little bit. The yeah. other film she was in in 2013 that came out was Her, where she plays the disembodied voice to, um, what's his nuts? Joaquin, that guy. Those nuts. Yes. Uh, I, I actually, I, I read a journal article that I can post in the show notes when we do publish this episode uh, from Film Quarterly. Um, and uh, the author wrote that uh, Johansson is the perfect choice of late to play inhuman characters precisely because she is so human. And it's really interesting to me looking back because yes, she was a megastar and yet here are these people not recognizing her. And on the one hand, I kind of get that because it's just so out of context that on the one hand you really, like, it, it, it couldn't be. It couldn't actually be this Hollywood starlet driving around, right? Like, uh, like Dan is in the audience. We ran into our friend Dan uh, in the lobby. Like this week, there's Dan. Um, Look I, at him. We know him. We know him from Queens back in Canada. I did not expect to see him at Salem Horror Fest. He's not a, he's not a filmmaker. He's not a, so I didn't recognize him right away just because it was so out of context. Um, and then the other theory is that maybe she wasn't quite so big overseas. Uh, pff, no. No, no, no. No. Have you been to Scotland? I mean, it's beautiful, but there isn't a lot going on there. So if like a like film crew showing up, but Mm -hmm. I feel like they did it kind of guerrilla style. So Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of that. Um, And the other thing, uh, because I I think we want to talk a little bit about Miss Johansson. is uh, if anyone remembers the memification of when they were shooting um, the scene where she trips and falls on the street. Um, and so you can see like memes of that. You can see like um, it's, it gets called out a lot on Twitter. It certainly did at least a few years ago. So again, you're, you're kind of taking this cinema verite, this guerrilla style of filmmaking and reappropriating it in the context of uh, kind of Twitter social media sphere for lols. Um, whereas the moments within the film that these were kind of surrounding are so important and so very, very different to the context within the film. Um, so I, I kind of love that it's, uh, I think it speaks to how indie under the skin is and how um, it, it's just like not a lot of people went to see it. It's, it's really critically loved, but not a lot of people have seen it. And I think we can attest to the amount of people who saw it for the first time tonight. And I think it's also worth mentioning when we're talking about Miss Scarjo. There's so much to talk about with regard to her. But early in her career, there was always an emphasis on her body, almost more so than than just about any other actress I can talk about, simply because she was, you know, like I said, she was so real. She was so real. And back when Lost in Translation came out, you know, here's this fresh face that just seems so real, and she's got a real body and real this and that. And what's interesting about that film was that she was 18 years old playing a 25-year-old, which is a weird 
inverse of what Hollywood usually does with women playing roles. So there's that. And then in doing research on Under the Skin, God damn it. Her body was being referred to as refreshing and real. Uh, it's an A24 film. And on A24's site, to this day, they describe her character as a voluptuous woman of unknown origin. Like it's front and center as if it's so important, which it's really not. I feel like the film treats nudity, and there's a lot of nudity in a really um, clinical, non-sexual manner, even though we're seeing men fully erect. Hard. <laughs> Those are the strangers that who didn't want to sign off on it. Yeah, right? yeah. They got to that point. They were like, "Oh, I don't know. <laughs> See my willy." <laughs> anyway, oh. what now? Yeah, no. I think um, just to wrap up a little bit on ScarJo, she she continually seems to be on this bent to make herself problematic and not oh. very fun to watch anymore. God. So Damn. it's kind of it, it's. She didn't have that stigma, I don't think, back in 2013, 2014 when I first saw it. And now kind of with her Woody Allen comments, with all this like uh, the uh, problematic like plain Asian and all of this kind of stuff going on, it's it disrupts a little bit of my viewing of this film because we are so focused on her. We are so indebted to this character that to spend that much time with her, I'm always like, like watching it a couple weeks ago, I was like, oh God, why do you believe Woody? Why? <laughs> anyway, so it's, it's, I think that's kind of the interesting thing and, and we always play this game of casting people with star power and what does that mean? Of course, it means you're going to get funding for your film. You're going to get to do a ton of stuff you maybe wouldn't have if you cast the barmaid down the road um, and it brings people into a certain way um, and I think the film uses that kind of celebrity, that kind of beautiful glossiness that she has um, in a way that it, it makes her desirable and it challenges that desirability. It asks us what we do to ourselves to be close to that desirability and I think that's it's a fascinating question I don't have an answer for it but it just poses it and I think by posing it we're left in this kind of weird gooey stasis of feelings which is always fun okay so Glazer said he wanted to make a film more about a human experience a universal human experience than a gendered one and I would say <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that was Jonathan. Thumbs down. Here we are living under patriarchy, and you can't do that. You can't. I don't care how talented you are. I don't care how real your real girl is. She's a girl, and it's a man's world, and that's what this film is fundamentally the fuck about. So, uh, talking a little bit about gender roles, I've done some research on gender roles. What? You? Gender? And the term gender role came from a guy named John Money. <laughs> And he's been working since the 1950s. And he was the first to take a really... Wait, does he work hard for his money? <laughs> I'll answer that in a second. Okay. I have an answer to that. Um, uh, and he, he was the first to really broaden the definition of gender um, beyond reproductive anatomy, that, uh, that there's a whole lot more going on to that. However, this guy was also a massive piece of shit. Some of his experimentation to test his theories involved lying about results, uh, involuntary sex reassignment of children, um, and sexually abusing children who went on to commit suicide in adulthood. So now that I have you all here, can we all just collectively flip him the bird? Fuck you, yeah, John Money. Fuck you, fuck John you. Money. That's all of my podcast you're going to get because I, I, I did more research and it, it gets better. Um, <laughs> the most fruitful discussion 
of gender roles that I was able to find is about gender performativity, which was coined by uh, Judith Butler in a book called Gender Trouble, Feminism and the Subversion of Identity. Once again, you'll find this in the course notes. And she takes the idea of gender being a social construction, which I think we can all get behind. We've talked about that ad nauseum in the show. Um, And she takes that even further by bringing in the concept of performativity, that gender is something that you do more so than something that you are. But what she focused on was the fact that this is involuntary and this is something that's hard to bend your head around because we all think that we're masters of our own destiny and all of our behavior is calculated and controlled. But she insists that the performance is out of an individual's control and it's an ongoing process that results in words and actions that evolve organically and rather effortlessly. Uh, and bear with me, I know it, it gets weird. This is a weird movie. I'm, a, I'm allowed to get a little bit weird. So the performance produces the individual and not the, the other way around. Does that make sense? You guys still, really? Wow, okay, you guys are quick. Um, so I read a really good example online, which is to say that of a- Good, of a, I was embarrassed to ask to need an example. I've got a couple, so. yeah, okay, yeah. great. Um, Like you're placing the emphasis not on the individual doing the deed, but the deed itself as coming organically from the individual. So the example that I found online was that of a firm masculine handshake. Like we all know on some level that when you shake someone's hand and you want to assert a kind of masculine assertiveness, you give a nice firm grip, you know, like never trust someone with a limp handshake. And so as a result, if you identify with that kind of intention, you unconsciously give a nice firm grip. You are performing this kind of masculine action without directly trying to perform masculinity. Um, That was the example that I was able to find online. I was like, okay, that's okay. I think a better example would be the stereotypical linguistics of gay males. And I think you've heard this before that like, why are you acting like that? It's like, I'm not acting like anything. This is something that maybe had had its roots in stereotypical gender roles, but has evolved organically and been adopted to the point that it's just, it's just people being themselves. Does that make sense? I think so. Yeah, that's kind of true with you. Um, Anyway, (laughs) I think it's a really interesting approach when it comes to under the skin because she's able to perform human femininity and she has a script and we're going to get a little bit into the script a little bit later on but um but she performs it with a sense of detachment at first but when it starts to sink in when it starts to reach that unconscious organic level that's when she starts to fall apart because it's becoming discordant with what's deep inside yeah, no, I think um, the important thing to note about her script and the kind of things she follows is that it's so benign. It is so benign, but once you have a sense of what she's up to, it becomes really uh, eerie and malicious. The sense of asking, like, who's waiting for you? Are, you know, where are you going? Do you live alone? Um, and those are the things that, I mean, I'm sure it's creepy if you get asked that as a man, but as a woman, that's like, Oh my, oh no, oh no, I'm just gonna start fucking running. Um, which is exactly what happens to her at the end of the film because when she encounters the, log, the commercial logger at the end, those are almost the exact questions he's asking her. Yeah. Where are you going? How are you gonna get there? All of that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And she's too kind of disoriented to kind of maybe really sense that danger at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, but her whole kind of feminine wild is the whole like it's the tight bustier thing it's the like high clicky heels and like the weird disheveled hair it's a very um gross coral lipstick (laughs) 
yeah, she wore a lot of that lipstick. Um, but it has, it's a very specific kind of femininity and it's a very specific femininity to a male gaze. It's, it's very much designed for a male gaze. And I hope you're ready because we're gonna talk about gaze right now. Yeah, uh, because we can't get enough of that on this show. Um, so of course we've talked a lot about the male gaze on this um, uh, in, on this here podcast, but I wanted to talk a little bit about how under the skin kind of creates a female gaze and what it does with that female gaze. If we're looking at uh, ScarJo, whose name is Laura in this film, but is it? Yeah, that's what know? she's credited. She's credited as Laura. Okay. I would feel better if her name was like Laura the alien, but we don't get that. Um, in the book, she's actually her name is Isserly. So, sure, I'm just gonna call her ScarJo because I feel like they're so intertwined, British ScarJo. Um, so when we think of this film and kind of designing a female gaze, I, I think it complicates it by marrying a female gaze with an alien gaze. And I think it kind of speaks to the female gaze if we're looking at it as this omnipotent thing that, um, uh, that goes forward and that's how we're all gonna see this film, it's engendering it as other, so deeply other that we kind of can't see past it. We can't see it as normal because she is so abnormal. Uh, and I think it brings into question on a, some kind of level, even subconsciously, is that are we ever gonna be prepared for a female gaze in film? Um, and I think we're getting there. I think there are other different examples, but I think what Under the Skin does is it really serves to complicate that theory and that notion. Um, and then, I mean, I really believe the first part of this film, particularly when she's driving around before she uh, frees the man um, with the uh, deformity on his face, he, um, she, she is so predatory and she is so about watching and observing and knowing when to strike and kind of what to do. Um, and then as she kind of moves through the world a little bit, as she frees him, then she becomes open and she becomes vulnerable to the gaze. And now she is being gazed upon. Um, and there's a, a really interesting um, theorist by the name of John Berger. Um, and from his book, uh, he's actually an art critic. And uh, he did this um, BBC series and then it was really popular and it was kind of recontextualizing art history in a way that isn't just like, this is art, isn't this art beautiful? It is important because a man painted it. And actually say, okay, if we're gonna look at all these naked women, what does that do to the way we see women? Like those are the kinds of things he was asking. And it's a very different series um, for the BBC to be doing, especially in the 70s. Uh, and I think most of it is on YouTube if you are so inclined and we will link some of those. Uh, but he has a quote. So I'm gonna read this quote right now and had a quarter of a wine. Um, Okay, so this is from John Berger. Uh, a woman is always accompanied, except when quite alone, and perhaps even then, by her own image of herself. While she is walking across a room or weeping at the death of her father, she cannot avoid envisioning herself walking or weeping. Uh, from earliest childhood, she is taught and persuaded to survey herself continually. She has to survey everything she is and everything she does because how she appears to others and particularly how she appears to men is of crucial importance for what is normally thought of as success of her life. So I think that kind of goes to speak. Obviously, we kind of feel the predatory gaze of the motorcycle man who he senses like working with her to kind of clean up, dump bodies, you know, all the stuff we get boyfriends to do. And then, um, and then as she, <laughs> as she kind of moves into this world, she encounters, um, it, we've already talked about, you know, evil commercial logging man. Uh, but then of course there's the nice man 
the nice man on the bus. And yes, he is helping her. He says, can I help you? Do you need help? But he is watching her. And I think as you know, many of us feel, and I think many of us, you know, just whatever our gender and where we are in our lives, we felt that watch. And I think particularly as a woman, it's like sometimes I just want to sit on a bus and cry. I just want to sit on a bus and cry. I don't want anyone to fucking talk to me. But there's a sense that if I'm, um, if I'm a woman, then I need to be helped. I need to be aided. And some very kind man needs to come and help me. And um, yeah, it, it obviously serves a very deep, important purpose to this narrative of her kind of coming in contact with a kind man um, and learning what that relationship could and maybe should feel like. Um, now, the other moment I wanted to mention in terms of her gaze is... Before oh, you move yeah. on from the bus, I, I wanted to point out, I don't know if you guys caught this, but remember how the bus driver is like, she doesn't want anything to do with you, man, fuck off. And do you ever feel like that, ladies in the audience, where, where, where yeah. the white knight, you know, they're almost fighting over who's got your best intentions in mind, and you're just like, how about me? <laughs> Maybe it's me, guys. Sorry, go on. Yeah, no, so, um, and the other scene I wanted to talk about, because I think it's important to touch on, because I think it's so central to particularly the first half of this film, and what a lot of people think of when they think about this film, is the scene on the beach. Um, and that is so harrowing. It is so traumatizing. I feel really sick. And I think what makes me feel sick about it is because we've spent so much time with ScarJo and we've been kind of following her around and we're like, okay, we're figuring out this narrative. We're going along. We're doing this and this and this. That's cool. And then we get to the beach and we begin to see some fundamentally goodness of humanity. Um, someone goes in to save their dog. Uh, the husband goes in to, or her partner goes in to save the woman who's gone after the dog. The, the random surfer comes in to help and they all perish. And they all perish because they've become vulnerable and they've tried to help. Um, and she was simply waiting for, you know, access to kidnap him and hopefully get her to come back with him. Um, but because she's standing by and just observing and it's not even like she's kind of trying to understand something like she does later on in the film she's blank face stony just kind of like standing there shifting her weight trying to walk in like those weird pebbles with her heels which is hard and she she stands there and we realize not only in one circumstance we realize the beauty of humanity and how we can try to help each other with then this kind of cruel cold passiveness and it is so fucking eerie it is this like discordant like yell that happens with the with the uh, the waves and everything happening but it's it's truly an effective scene and i think it serves to show how distancing this kind of female alien gaze is from what humanity is and i think the end of the film is how far you see her journey come from from that scene where she's passive to where she is uh, kind of heavily swept up in all of this and then of course you know as you're driving around in the scenes with her she's encountering these scenes of humanity and I think what's kind of endearing about this character even though it's maybe not overtly endearing is she's encountering these scenes of kind of um, oddness of humanity like a bunch of guys or families getting out of a football match and being all like blokey and loud and all of that and she's just like and you feel like, yeah, I get it. That's dumb. I don't like it when people do that. And even, you know, people stumbling along the street drunk. And, and you kind of get the absurdity of humanity. But this film really balances it with the beauty of it or the potential beauty. Mm-hmm. And it's murky. Like that scene on the beach, insofar as she is witnessing something very beautiful about humanity, which is, you know, altruism and sacrifice. There's also that sense of... Um, uh, it's irrational. It's irrational that the man who was rescued would go right back into the water. And so I could almost see her being like, man, 
people be dumb. <laughs> uh, now I have to go find someone else to kill. Uh, Woody Allen, please. <laughs> yes. So anyway, getting back to getting back to a script. Getting back to a script that we all know and love. I think fundamentally this film, we see this alien going on a journey that I think a lot of women have gone on, which is to say, hey, I have boobs now and boys want to talk to me and I can maybe use these. You know, there's that weird false sense of power. And this false sense of power is all over our culture. It is all over those shitty bro comedies where it's like, oh, the girl calls the shots because if I don't wash the dishes, I'm not getting a blowy later on. And it's so ingrained into our cultural psyche and it's complete bullshit. You know, like we're all adults here. We know by now that that is complete nonsense, that this is a false sense of power because fundamentally rape exists, sexual assault exists. And and I actually feel like ScarJo was fundamentally pretty defenseless throughout the film it's kind of she's got these motorcycle men sort of looking out for her but at the same time we get a sense of what she knows and what she doesn't know she knows the script she knows how to get people into her car she knows how to get them into that decrepit house and let me tell you if that was a guy seducing women being like come into my nasty shit shack to get laid it wouldn't happen. It doesn't work that way, but it works if she's a woman. So that you know makes what? sense. And sometimes they're just basement apartments and you say, all right. <laughs> That's dark. And then even as they descend into I the abyss. I a lot of artists. I, <laughs> we all have our thing. <laughs> So she's playing this script, she knows the script, she learns that the script is bogus much the same way many of us learned that script is bogus through adolescence. Um, but things change when she meets the man with the disfigured face because that script doesn't work anymore. The rules change and that's fundamentally when she makes that break with this role that she has. And the script always wins, doesn't it? Oh, it always does. Um you're punished when you subvert it to a certain extent. And we're going to come back to that, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Are you going to let me go to my crazy theory? Is it time for her crazy theory? You guys want to hear my crazy theory? Oh, boy. I'm ready. Oh, boy. I don't know. Okay. It's fun. <laughs> okay. So, here's a question. Is under the skin folk horror? So she smacks me with this at like 2 p.m. today. We're hungover as fuck. <laughs> I come up with this theory before when I was not hungover. Yeah. I just, this is just when we happen to talk about it. Okay. So do you want them to answer it? Do you no. want me to answer it? Do you want to... <laughs> no. uh, see okay. a lot of blank faces. So a lot of... here's how I got to this theory. Um, so I've seen this movie a few times. And I know you think a lot about gender. You think a lot about this, that. And all this kind of stuff we're feeling in this room right now. And... I think this is a film that is so glorious on the rewatch because you're going to pick up different things each and every time you watch it. I think it ha- that's where I kind of get that Kubrick sense. Like every time I watch The Shining, it's a bit different. Um, and what really, really struck me about this viewing of it a couple weeks ago in my home was the sense of nature 
and the sense of self returning to nature. Um, so if we think of ScarJo's narrative journey throughout this film, she starts in like sci-fi, um, beautiful sleekness. She then kind of uh, is dropped into a city center, a hub of humanity. And then she splits and kind of makes a run for it. And then she kind of winds up in a small town. And then she runs from it further and runs up in the actual woods back in the uh, notion of the purest na notion of nature yet that notion of nature to me is kind of coded as corrupted because again you have the sense or there is the commercial logger there she interacts with his truck a little bit so is there there's that sense that even the kind of most pure place you can be in this world is still slightly corrupted now it is still perverse is there anything true and of course commercial logging is where you take wood and you process it and sell it for shit and you know it's just kind of feeding back into this industrial realization which we have created for ourselves so folk horror um now, folk horror is pretty hot right now. I think with you know the return of Midsommar and uh, a few other films like The Witch, things like that, um, there's been a lot of interest in it. You know, I think there's a documentary coming out. There's all kinds of stuff about it. So I spent a lot of time um, looking through all the various definitions of folk horror, and I didn't find a truly definitive one. Um, there are a few people who are credited with it over the years of uh, coming up with it, but the biggest consensus I could find with folk horror was it's a fear of nature. We've become too industrialized. We rely on our capitalist things. We've all kind of moved into urbanized centers. And then when we have to return to that natural state, we're actually really fearful of it. We're scared of it because it feels different. And while it may be, uh, it shouldn't be new to us, it feels new. And it, you get that sense of like, we are so... Uh, reliant on our Google Maps and all of that. And then when we get to these places, it's like, shit, there's just some things that can't be Google mapped. Um, you know, you feel this anxiety in like the Blair Witch Project. All It's all littered throughout horror. But what I find quite interesting is that it's her... I, I think this film is ultimately about her becoming part of humanity in some way even if it's not a fully physical way she's becoming part of humanity and this journey that pushes her away she becomes further and further uh, moved to the outskirts of society and she winds up dying alone in the woods because something has over overtaken her in that place um, now I go kind of back to one of the other famous pieces while it was not written by a Scotsman um, it is set in Scotland uh, and that would be Macbeth um, and uh, and so for Macbeth, he, he was just trying to seize power. And these witches were like, oh, you're totally going to get to be king. Uh, just, you know, and the, your power will only get taken away if these things happen. And of course, they're like, the witches are just kind of fucking with him a little bit. So they say something like, you know, you will be king until the woods of Dunsinane come to the your castle door. And he's like, woods can't move great i'm gonna be king forever uh and of course he pisses off enough people that like other like people like other knights and armies are coming to fight him and um what they do is they they cut the trees and and the soldiers stand behind the trees and then they just move forward um, and if you ever see the Roman Polanski version, which uh, you don't have to, it was produced by Playboy and it's Roman Polanski. So Lady Macbeth is hot and always naked. Um, but there's, I'm going to stand up for this. But there's this great scene where Macbeth is in his castle and he's like, 
those woods look closer than they were yesterday, something like that. <laughs> and then it cuts, it cuts from like Macbeth like this to a side shot. So you see these trees and then you see the trees to their side and you see the soldiers and they're all going. <laughs> and it's like, it's, it's a whole, like, it's like 50 guys just moving slowly. And it's, uh, anyway, folk horror. Um, <laughs> but the whole thing about Macbeth is, in Macbeth and within tragedies, there is a sense that the natural order has, when it becomes unnatural, it has to restore order. So it will kind of do whatever it can to do that, to make it happen. And in Macbeth, what happens is this natural world kind of gangs up on Macbeth and Lady Macbeth and pushes them and pushes them till they die. Spoiler alert uh, for Macbeth. And... Um, um, and the trees is one of them, and it's kind of one of the biggest examples, partially because it's so odd, uh, because it's so scenic. But I thought Macbeth was an interesting comparison because, like we have in Under the Skin with the commercial logger, the sense of um, a perversion of this natural world, we also have soldiers cutting down trees and kind of taking it into their own hands. Uh, so this whole, I, I think the natural world is kind of reckoning with itself, and it's also being played with constantly. Um, and I think as you see the film and as she moves further away from her her role and her duty she's becoming you know she's further away in the frame there's still a lot of close-ups on her but she becomes smaller and smaller within the frame and it always feels to me like on this watch that this world was just consuming her she gets consumed by fog as she gets consumed by these um, landscapes that seem to inhabit her uh, it's like the natural world has kind of picked her and has descended on her and it's way to kind of reconcile itself with an alien being being a part of it is to kind of sick this fucked up logger on her um, and so that's that's kind of my folk horror take and maybe it's a sci-fi folk horror and I think another interesting thing to talk about in terms of if we talk about this film in a sci-fi horror place and that's kind of how I would place this film is it's not the sci-fi of the 1950s it's not like oh the aliens ooh you know, majestic and grand, and even if they're going to come and kill us all, there's something very grand and big about it. Even, to, you know, over to, like, Independence Day, this is aliens coming through the back door and just slowly picking off people one by one um, to harvest them and harvest their guts and do something with them. So I, I think there is something to kind of talk about the isolation that we're feeling at this day and age and the... Um, vulnerability of the of marginalized people and how in some ways maybe we are all a little bit marginalized you know obviously more some more than others but uh when we come to the notion of losing people and how easily people seem to get lost in this big world it's it's quite something and i also think we should maybe talk a little bit about the girl at the beginning okay uh i want to but i want to address i want to address all of that now if i had a video store and it was just horror movies, would I put under the skin in the folk horror section? No. I don't even think that I'm this movie would be video in my store. video store. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> well, truly, like it, 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 we can say horror adjacent, I think, but the way this film deals with nature, and I, I'm gonna go back to the book a little bit because yeah. I feel like the book was a lot more overt in terms of tackling this theme with nature. In the book, they are harvesting men for meat. It is for meat. It is a delicacy to their race. Um, we also get the sense that this alien race has destroyed their own planet environmentally. And so Isserly, who is the female protagonist in the book, has she's very enamored 
with earth and she's enamored with the really with the mundane once again and i'm not talking about passers-by i'm talking about clouds i'm talking about snow ocean animals bugs like she's really interested in nature and she has a fascination and then in the end if you don't mind me spoiling it for you um she's caught and she chooses to become part of nature as opposed to exposing her alien race. And at this point she's, she's rejected her task just like Laura has. (laughs) Can't call her that. British Scarjo. (laughs) Scarjo. Thank you. Um, So her decision to vaporize herself and become one with nature is a lot more, um, it has a lot more agency, whereas yeah. whereas our ScarJo is kind of a victim of humanity. And once again, Glazer, you know, he shows uh, the embers of her flames entering the atmosphere. So you do get the sense that Laura is rejoining nature. Now, when I was reading the book, um, I have always been a meat eater. Um, I cook vegetarian mostly at home, but I often think about eating meat. I'm not like I'm not the kind of meat eater who's just like yeah, I don't I don't fucking care about animals. I do, and I think critically. And what I would tell myself for the most part was, if lions and tigers had our kind of consciousness and our kind of intellect and our way of organizing, would they not factory farm? They probably would. They'd have the cutest factories. <laughs> Oh my God, I want that. And insofar as we talk about gender being constructed, it's constructed, but it's constructed by us and we are nature. So we can talk about patriarchy being this horrible, shitty thing that oppresses us, but I don't think it's entirely unnatural. I think there's something to be said about these processes being kind of the way species emerge, do their thing, fuck it up, go extinct, move on to the next planet, wash, rinse, repeat. Um, And so I think when we're talking about this film, especially we get glimpses into what this alien race is. And so you were going to start talking about the woman at the beginning. Yeah. And just, uh, I kind of always love that moment at the beginning of the film where you have that figure and we'll talk about that in a second, but when she's getting the clothes off her and she sees the ant on her finger, the ant just kind of crawls and the camera holds on it a little bit. Um, I just think that is a really beautiful and poignant image and I think speaks to her bigness in that moment. She is this kind of otherworldly thing with this tiny little thing on her finger and then again, by the end of the film, she's been totally subsumed um, and consumed by this world and she is kind of like the ant. She's just, you know, but she didn't set the ant on fire, so there was that. Um... So yeah, I, th- I think the obvious link from the beginning to the end there is that when this woman, when her her predecessor, I guess I, I think it's her predecessor. And, and I saw a couple of like, a couple there's of different readings. There's a couple of different readings that she was a that the woman <laughs> that was found in the ditch, not was, Scarjo. Uh, well, yeah. But um, <laughs> that she just assumed her form and took her clothes and like th- that she was kind of a prototype. But I think I think the theory that I subscribed to was this is the previous alien who had her job and she took not only her physical form and her clothes, but her task. And to me, this is kind of a glimpse into this alien hierarchy that that they do have a hierarchy, that they too are stratified such that someone has to do the dirty work. And the person who does the dirty work is largely dispensable. If they're found in a ditch, they're just going to be stripped and it's on to the next one. Whereas the motorcycle man, and these are gendered figures. We don't know if the aliens have gender or if they understand gender, but I think we can safely say that they understand stratification. And so is that to say that stratification is nature, that it's natural? It could be. 
I think so. I think it is. I think so. And I think I, I think ultimately she comes full circle and she becomes part of nature. And insofar as her narrative is tragic, it's because nature is. Aww. I know. It's beautiful. No, it's mean. It's nasty. <laughs> it's yucky. Well, and I think what's interesting to talk about the alien figure, um, and what I do want to mention is in the scene um, with the man uh, that she picks up about halfway through the film, who is the uh, neurofibromatosis uh, Um and that's the scene, of course, when we realize she actually has to get fully naked to seduce him. He's the one who's like, am I dreaming? What the hell is going on? And she act like she's short of physically pulling him in. Is She has to do the most work because he is the most reticent and the most weary of everything that's going on. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and in that uh, scene, she catches a glimpse of another alien figure um, in there. Did you guys catch that? I missed yeah. this. You guys did? God damn it. Yeah. Yeah, cool. I, it's it's brief. Don't feel bad if you missed it because it is it's brief. And actually, to go back and it's a very dark scene. You see the dark figure. It's all it's all layered. But um, and I think there's a few different readings of it. Like, is it just another alien who's there? I actually think it's her kind of seeing herself or her true form and her reckoning with that. And you know, she she was helped uh, in a pre- previous scene. People pick her up when she trips on the street, and she's like, oh, okay. And then she she has seemingly a real connection um, with this man with the uh, neurofibromatosis, and they they seem to have kind of an understanding, a, a, a connection, a something, and that he's the most untrusting of her, and yet she can submerge him, and then she chooses to set him free after she catches a glimpse of herself, and I think that glimpse to her is her first moment of understanding that the alien is another self. It is a dis- distant and different version of herself at this point. And she's, and she's having a harder and harder time reconciling it and recognizing it in a way that she maybe once did. Um, yeah. And I think it's so tragic that it, it seems cyclical. Like the fact that the woman at the beginning, the Scardra at the beginning, when she's looking up at new Scardra <laughs> with tears in her eyes, it looks a whole lot like when the Scardra we know is holding her skin suit, oh. looking up at herself. And to me, that just like, it's the circle of life, man. It's like, I, I think of my young niece and how I'm going to try and explain patriarchy to her, but she's going she's gonna to learn the same way I did. Well, listen, Andrea, here's what I would tell your niece. <laughs> Watch this movie. Someday, a man is just going to set you on fire. <laughs> and on that day, I want you to remember a few words. Stop, drop, and roll. <laughs> All right. They didn't have that on the alien planet, apparently. What else you got? Because now I'm sad. Like, do you I have know, something? Sad. Do you have something <laughs> uplifting? Because I do not. Well, I think we can wrap this up now, or start to. Yeah. So should we pose our our big question? Is it, it folk horror? No. Answer. <laughs> Is it a feminist film? What do you guys think? Oh, okay, amazing. I've seen a couple head shakes. I've seen a couple people wondering. I don't know. Um, The side I kind of come down on is I think it's maybe not a feminist film, although it's a film about womanhood. Uh, And I think it's very much a film about humanity, the good and the bad. And it's kind of um, an 
a clinical examination of us that becomes a very emotional one. Um, so, so for me, I think that's where I kind of stay with it because, um, you know, ScarJo kind of goes from like predatory to vulnerable. Uh, we see various incarnations of male characters, uh, some kind and some good and some normal and some really fucking evil and gross. And I think that kind of scope that we see of humanity um, is interesting and, and I feel like it's so much about all of us and who we are and it doesn't, doesn't necessarily give us hope so I don't know. I, I, and not that feminist films have to give us hope, and they, most often they don't. But they, they speak to something unknown. And I feel like so much of Under the Skin is known, but shown to us through this alien gaze, so it becomes uh, palpable. Like we can feel all those little moments that feel um, normal to us through heteronormativity, the dating structures, all of these things that we do. They feel normal and we recognize them, but they also begin to feel alien to us as we watch this film. I know exactly what you mean, and I agree with you entirely. I, I read, in doing my research, I read a lot of readings of this film that were staunchly feminist, that people were very empowered by this subversion of sexual power because she's a predator and she's a predator. For myself, I don't accept her as a predator ever, really. I think her predatory nature is an illusion that comes unraveled. And I think, I, I think it's, it's nonsense from the get-go and she just learns it. And it's not, nothing changes except her awareness of her own oppression. And to me, a feminist film is one that challenges the patriarchy. This film depicts patriarchy in a very tragic narrative. I don't see it as challenging it. I think there are feminist aspects of it insofar as she develops a sense of self-awareness. She develops a sense of agency. In the book, she develops a lot more agency. I think I, I would say that the book is categorically more feminist than the film. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I'd agree with that. But once again, to speak to your point, I feel like, and this isn't very academic, but like there's a spot in my heart mm -hmm that tells me whether or not a film is feminist. And I don't know if it's that it's hope, because even the bleakest films, even the films with the most devastating endings, if they're feminine, if they challenge the patriarchy, if they challenge me intellectually, I, I'm galvanized and I'm excited and I'm screaming from the rooftops that everyone needs to see this film. I don't feel that way here. Yeah, I think it's just a really complicated film. And I think I think the sense I'm getting in this room, the sense I'm seeing on people's faces, is that we all have a lot of complicated feelings about this film. And they're not something that's going to come to us in one night, uh, one week, one month, and maybe not even our lifetime. I think this is a film that... <laughs> I think this is a film that, um, if you enjoyed it, if you got something out of it, which I certainly do, um, that you'll come back to it again and again, and you're going to puzzle over it. You're going to think about it. It'll, it'll come to you in that dark of night when you can't sleep and you're like oh god that moment where she's looking at herself but who is her true self is the alien still her is she part alien what is happening is she really crying like that's that's the shit that'll keep you up at night and that's that's these are the kind of films that I love and why I think we keep doing you know this kind of stuff that we do and I think it's a kind of film that why you guys are here tonight and why you want to engage in this conversation because these films present depictions of our lives and who we are that don't have an easy answer so we want to we want to look for interpretations we want to feel them and i think this has this is a film that has endless potentials for readings and i've read some of those feminist pieces that say yes this is feminist and while i don't believe it for myself i don't disagree with them you know so 
I had a hilarious quote. Can I just oh, find it? please. Can you just bear with me for a sec? One, okay. <laughs> One review I read of this film culminated in the following phrase. It reminds us that the things that scare us the most are the things we do not understand. <laughs> now that is terrifying. That is terrifying that somebody was willing to publish it That's something I don't understand. Wait, was this like an IMDb review or in like... Someone's blog. Of course it was a man. (laughs) Of course it was. But I... I, I, (laughs) Insofar as I brought that up to make fun of it, I think think maybe that's uh, that's the note I want to leave the subject (laughs) on. We don't have to understand. I feel like uh, of our six years doing this podcast, this is the most amorphous. This is a film that like we've done the episode and I still don't have a great grip, no, but I'm okay with it. No, and I feel like, you know, if we went back and were to do a redo an episode in like another six years and we redid an episode on Under the Skin, we'd probably feel differently about it because I think it's going to, you know, it's going to age with us and it's going to yeah. it's going to th- float through our head spaces. And ScarJo is going to say so much more stupid <sighs> shit. She's not you done. You know what? One day they're going to have to like uh, she's going to say something so terrible, they're going to have to recut this goddamn film with Christopher Plummer in her role. <laughs> and he is old. He is an old man. So they should do that sooner rather than later. Or she should do Macbeth and she can play all the trees. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. Thank you so much for coming, you guys. Um, it's always such a pleasure. Um, <laughs> Should we announce next episode? Do you guys want? Do you guys want the exclusive? Oh my, Andrea, we didn't talk about this. I know. I, I don't actually remember. This is. <laughs> it this has is kind of Alex's job. This is every <laughs> single episode. I'm like, what are we doing next time? Uh, I'll give you a hint. It was the book I gave up on on the plane. Ooh, yes! God, I'm so excited okay, about this so one. So our November episode, we are gonna do. Interview with the Vampire and Queen of the Damned. Yeah. Queen of the Damned is my biggest guilty pleasure. I've never seen it. I listen to that soundtrack to this day. <laughs> all the time. Korn's best album, am I right? Okay. So, you guys now have a head start on your homework. Um, so read those books, because we're suffering through them. You should, too. Oh, I gave up. If someone could actually read them and just kind of, like, give me some notes, that'd be super great. Um, okay. Holes no. notes of Interview with the Vampire. <laughs> Jesus Christ. That'd be funny. Um, thank you so much for coming. Thank you for um, investing yourselves and your time in this film and then spending it with us. We know it's not an easy film or easy topics to talk about. We appreciate you. Um, so until the next time, a Hollywood starlet pulls over and asks if you want to get into her car. Office hours are closed. Good night, Salem. Thank you. But wait, wait. Oh, oh yes. Tradition. We have to do Everybody. Everyone up. stand up. Stand up. Stand up like you're going to cut down a tree and uh, walk with it. These annual live show selfies are more important than you know. Because they really piss some people off. They do. We'll tell you about it outside. Get in there. All right. Oh, my arm is too short. Ready? Three, two, one. Say faculty. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Good night.